The Lord is salvation, part one, from Isaiah chapter one, verses one to twenty. Now, this is going to take us more than two weeks. Uh, The Lord is salvation will be our theme for the next four weeks. Uh, So this is part of our encounters with God. So the last couple of weeks we looked at the prophet Jonah and his encounter with God while inside, of all places, a fish. This morning we are looking at the great prophet Isaiah. Just to, again, just to indicate where we're heading. So today we introduce the book. Next week we're going to look at the great encounter found in Isaiah chapter 6. And then leading to Easter, we will spend a couple of weeks on chapter 53 and you know what that's about. If not, have a read. So, let's uh, introduce the prophet. What is the function of a prophet? In today's understanding, we mainly think of prophets as having the uh, ability to foretell what's going to happen sometime in the future. Now, even though there's a lot of predictive prophecy in the Bible, it is not limited to just that. Overall, the prophets were God's spokesmen and women, making known his will to his people and the surrounding nations. For example, in Jonah, there's a lot of fourth telling, but almost no foretelling. Through the prophets, most times God was calling the people back to himself, giving them a chance to get it right, to repent. If they didn't, these were going to be the consequences. Their message was for the present for the present time, sometimes for the near future and many times in the distant future. And that could be a hundred years, a thousand years, two thousand years, only God knows. It it is similar, best way I can compare it is if you stand in a a lookout, if you go to the Blue Mountains and, and, you know, stand in one of the great lookouts, there's this marvellous landscape before you. So where you're standing is, is the present. That's the ground on which you are standing. Then across the valley are the immediate peaks, perhaps, on the other side. But then as, as you look further into the distance, you will see higher mountains, further and further afield. And that's the way the prophecy in the Bible functions. But of course, if prophecy is drawing us back to do God's will, not everybody is all that concerned about God's will. They are more concerned about their own will and how God might fit into that, how God would adjust his will to mine. If not improve my lot in life, then at the very least protect what, what I already have, whether it's my health or my, my riches, whatever it might be, or my family. 
as we know, life is it's not always all that predictable, is it? And going back to Israel, Israel was a different to ours. Israel was a very religious community. And people will often consult prophets about their own affairs. And because of this, many so-called prophets worked near the temple where they ran their own franchises and, and and, and other religious precincts where they offered their services. Now, these prophets received their income from the people to whom they ministered. Many of them gave in to the temptation to prophesy the sorts of things that they wanted their hearers to hear. Let's go to him. He's always going to be fun for me. Right? Like your favourite doctor. Yes, you will be fine. Don't worry. Sure. You're going to die in a, in a week, but you've got five days, six days to just, you know, fine. And Jeremiah called them out. And this is what he said in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13. He says, from the greatest, from the least to the greatest, all, as he's talking about these prophets, all are greedy for, for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. Recently, the US election, many so-called prophets stuck their neck out saying that Trump was going to win. Remember that? But as we know, that didn't happen. Someone described it as a crisis of prophetic integrity. Gee, at the very least, it's that, isn't it? Remarkably, few of these so-called prophets ended up with egg on their faces. They just came up with different explanations. One exception is Jeremiah John's section was amongst many ministers who prophesied that Donald Trump would win the 2020 election. As this did not happen, he chose to close his ministry after admitting he got it wrong. At the very least, we should give him credit for that. But he's the only prominent one so far who's actually said, you know, I'm not really speaking for the Lord. This is just my own, you know, understanding. I'm just letting you know what you want to hear. Along with Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Isaiah is, is one of the great prophets of the Bible. His name means Yahweh or the Lord is salvation. He was based in Jerusalem in the south and his prophecies were directed towards Israel in the north and obviously to Judah where he was in Jerusalem and then to the surrounding nations. Jewish traditions says that he was of royal descent and he may have been a cousin of King Uzziah. And and this royal connection would have given him direct access to the palace, which would have been quite handy. Uh, And his prophetic ministry lasted quite a while. It lasted for some 40 years. 
in, in the, during the, the last half of the 8th century BC. He ministered during the reigns of four kings, Uzziah, uh, four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. He was a, a contemporary of some other prophets in the Bible like Amos, prophesied at the same time as Hosea and Micah. His wife was also um, prophetess in chapter 8 verse 3, we hear about that. They had two sons whose names had prophetic meanings. They, they were Shia Jashub uh, in chapter 7 verse 3 which means a remnant shall return and Mahar Shalal Hajbaz from chapter 8 verses 1 to 4 which I'm sure you want to name your kid that uh, which means quickly to the plunder quickly to the plunder so, so his kids were basically sermon illustrations Right? They were prophecies for the rest of the nation. So his wife was a prophetess, his kids were sermon illustrations, and so prophecy was well and truly a family affair here. What is his main message? Isaiah's main message is linked to his name, which is repeated throughout the book. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid from chapter 12, verse 2 and other verses like that. As you read the book, you will, you will, you will note that there's a strong presence of judgment in the first 39 chapters. Judgment after judgment after judgment. First 39 chapters of the book. How, and you're probably asking yourself, well, how can this be? If salvation is the main theme, why is there so much talk of judgment? It is precisely because of sin that judgment is there, which points to the need for salvation. Before we can have salvation, we must have a need for it. We don't direct people to self-help guides. Fix yourself. Go to this guru or that guru or, you know, that will fix you up. No. God is my salvation. He alone can save. Isaiah's Great influence is seen on the New Testament. His influence there is, is immense. He's quoted, directly quoted some 66 times by various authors. Most notably, the, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans, which is, and Romans, probably 16 chapters, is, is, is a treatise of the Gospel. It is explained, it, is, it debates it, it, it goes back and forth, and it really, there's no other epistle like Romans when it comes to understanding the beauty of the gospel. That's why Paul links back to Isaiah time and again. So Isaiah contains one of the clearest expressions of the gospel, the good news in the Old Testament. The prophet lived 
in the time of the Assyrian menace. Remember, we touched on the Assyrians in Jonah. Where is Assyria? That was modern-day Iraq in the east. Yet he also, supernaturally, by God's revelation, predicted the rise and fall of Babylon many generations later. Uh, he speaks of his day, of the time of the Babylonian captivity where Israel will be taken away. And then he looks even beyond that to the restoration that will come afterwards. It should also not be missed that he wrote of our day, of today, here and now, which helps us understand our time. That is the beauty of God's word. That is why I'm saying that even though he applied to the present and then the near future, he is also looking some two and a half, three thousand years later into our time. Why? How could this be possible? Because all of history lies in God's sovereign control. Not in kings, not in presidents, not in coups, not in backroom deals, not in election outcomes. Let's go back to our first reading this morning. Isaiah chapter 46 verses 8 to 11. Just to make sure that we get this right. Remember this, keep it in mind. Take it to heart. Okay, so three times. Remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart. What he's going to say is important. Don't leave this place without acknowledging this. You rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey. Yes, it was the Assyrians. Sennacherib was one of them and then it would be Nebuchadnezzar from the east, the birds of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. God can sometimes summon our enemies. I know you don't want to hear that, but He can. He has. Let me illustrate this with just about God's extraordinary sovereignty from a historical episode recorded actually in Isaiah chapter 37. After the fall of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north, um, Judah in the south, they became a vassal state to Assyria. A vassal state means that it's a bit like the time of Jesus under Romans, they had to pay taxes to their overlords. They had, Judah had to pay taxes to the Assyrians. So when Judah got 
sick of paying taxes, they rejected Assyria's authority and rebelled, basically. Now, King Sennacherib of Assyria, he brought troops to the region and first he went to the countryside and overran quite a few Judean towns in the countryside. His next big target, guess what? It was Jerusalem. And Jerusalem being on a hill, it was strategic position, obviously, because it was hard to conquer. So as Sennacherib was trying to conquer Jerusalem, God twice used Isaiah to send messages to Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the king of the time. He was the king of Judah. And as the attempted uh, siege of Jerusalem began, God had Isaiah tell Hezekiah not to despair about this Assyrian invasion. There were hundreds of thousands of soldiers outside and God tells them, don't worry about it. The Assyrians then sent a letter to Hezekiah in which they blasphemed God, big no-no, and then made further threats against Jerusalem. And after Hezekiah took the letter to God in prayer, good thing, good move, Hezekiah, God sent a second message through Isaiah, a very prophet here, letting King Hezekiah know that he will look after it. He will defend the city. And that's 37 verses 21 to 35. And then we read in chapter 37 verses 36 to 37. This is what he says. Just listen to this. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. 185,000 soldiers. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Just imagine the sight. You, you peer over the wall and you see all these dead people around. And that, the whole place obviously will start to stink. But the very enemies, those, just the previous day you looked over and they were all, you know, pointing their arrows and their, everything against you, starting to build the ramp to overtake the city. And God says, don't worry about it. Folks, who, do, who are we going to trust at the end? If the Lord doesn't look after the city, what good is it to have security guards and cannons and missiles and everything? If the Lord is not looking after us, we've got no hope. But because the Lord is our salvation, this book of Isaiah provides us with the most comprehensive prophetic picture of, of what it actually means that God is our salvation. Who does it point to? He points to Jesus. Not just our present predicament, our present problems, but this is the eternal solution. Almost one-third of the chapters of the book of Isaiah contain prophecies about Jesus Christ. It includes the full scope of his life, 
the announcement of his coming, chapter 40, his virgin birth, chapter 7, his proclamation of the good news, chapter 61, his sacrificial death that we're going to look at, chapter 53, leading into Easter, and his, his, his return, his second coming, his return to claim his own, chapter 60. Isaiah provides more prophecy of the second coming of Christ than any other prophet. And because of these Messianic texts in Isaiah, the book stands as a testament of the hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. The one who saves his people, even from themselves. So with that long introduction, let's look a little bit closer at chapter 1 our text this morning and, and these themes are, are repeated in the, in the rest of the book, the ones that we're hearing at here. So in verses 2 to 4 we have a complaint. Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation of people whose guilt is great. You might have noticed that uh, quite a a few of the New Testament epistles, letters, usually begin with warm greetings. Isaiah begins with a complaint. He does away with all the niceties. But it's not Isaiah's complaint, it is God's complaint. A summons, a summons to court, as, as God calls the heavens and the earth to be witnesses of a charge. Now anyone who can summon the heavens and the earth to pay attention is, is very important, very big. And no one bigger than God. And making a charge obviously calls for proof and the Lord begins this book by making his case against Israel and he will make his case in the first probably 39 chapters. What is the problem? The Lord's children have rebelled. They have turned their backs against their father. Uh, For now... uh, Isaiah doesn't give the specifics of of what they did, but he will. Um, But they rebelled. For all the sins that they have committed against one another, first and foremost, it is the Lord that I have sinned against. As David said, you alone have I sinned against. And, And the complaint includes this Sad contrast that even animals are domesticated enough to understand the will of their master. Even animals, the ox and the donkey, they know, but my people don't. Without a doubt, Isaiah prophesied as much to this present generation as he did to his own. One prophecy that I think appears to be aimed at our present time like no other. Look at 
no other time in civilization that I can look at. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Folks, there's a relabeling happening before our eyes. In the UK, pedophiles are rebranding themselves as minor attracted persons. It would not surprise me. It would not surprise me if in a few years there's a royal commission into how these former predators have been so unjustly treated. After all, if it's about feelings and attraction, who says that what they're feeling is wrong? If, if feelings is the basis upon which we base what is right and wrong. How is it? How is it that when you're driving and you see an orphan Joey, Joey is a small kangaroo and an orphan, but the mother's died. He's out of the pouch and obviously he can't survive by himself. And there are phone numbers saying if, if you see an injured animal, whatever, call such and such number. And then we, we go through all this effort to save a Joey so that we could care for it and so he survives. And then we put a story in the news. Yet, in most Australian states, a baby that survives abortion is simply abandoned despite all the medical care that is readily available on hand. All this medical, we we can, I think it's up to 21 weeks, even a baby up to 21 weeks of gestation, we can, the technology is so advanced now that we can we can save a baby even 21 weeks and yet a baby that survives abortion cannot be saved inside there are there is all the equipment available and outside the hospital there are all these these parents who are willing to adopt please let me save this life let me bring them up What sort of society does this? What sort of society? And then we talk about social justice, and yes, Isaiah talks about social justice, but he doesn't talk about social justice. Social justice is not a term in the scriptures, it's God's justice. For the last 2,000 years, who have been the most concerned about the orphans, about the widows, about education, about hospitals? It's been the Christians. It's been the Christians. That's God's justice. And now well, we've changed God's justice and call it social justice so that we can include all these other stuff. We don't talk about abortion, obviously, 
because that's a no-no. And rights for transgenders and same-sex marriage and it goes on and on. And we think that that's good. How can we call that good? When we have made, we have moved deliberately, we have moved away from God's standards. Darkness, we call that light. We call that enlightenment. How is that possible? Verse 4, the Lord alleges their sin and guilt. How are sin and guilt related? Well, they are, they are related, but there is some difference. Sin is when we disobey, whether in our hearts or outwardly when we act upon it with our, with our hands. Guilt is God's judicial ruling when disobedience has occurred. So he judges the sinner as worthy of punishment and, and shame is something that the, the, the believer might feel when God points out our sin and shame is a natural reaction. But notice how our society wants to relieve of shame through different methods and medications and tablets and the like. Have you heard the expression? There's no shame in that. Watching. Who, because the shame, we, we tend to feel shame if others are watching in, in front of others. But because there's no fear of God, then the last person that we feel shame in front of is God. And yet that's the very person that we should be feeling shame in front of God's. God's righteousness, God's holiness. For the child of God who has come to fear God, the only solution is justification, which is the complete and instantaneous removal of guilt from our record through Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 6, one of the great verses. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Beautiful, isn't it? Wrong worship, verses 10 to 17. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless. I keep your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. This is pretty hard. The, the, the prophets, like Isaiah, will make very clear that there is acceptable and there is unacceptable worship. So in these verses, verses 10 to 20, there is this divine rejection. By all appearances, it, it, they are following protocol. That they are doing the right thing by worshipping the Lord, using his name, his sacrifices. These are the things that he prescribed in the law. 
This wasn't the problem. The issue was their heart. There was no follow-through from what they did in the temple and how they lived out their lives outside in the normal course of life. There was no repentance for their sins. Yeah, they, they brought the lands and the sacrifices and did all that. Blah, blah, blah. But they didn't really follow through on their commitment. Because, folks, a true coming to the Lord entails a turning away from sin. That's what repentance is. The temple. And note the subtlety in the words here. He says the temple courts were God's, the trampling of, of my courts, but the evil assemblies were theirs. There is another important lesson for us here. When we gather before God, we cannot come without acknowledging our own unworthiness. We need to repent of sins and simply we cannot simply come up with this presumption of innocence. Oh, I'm not so bad after all. Look at, look at Pastor Paul. Look what he does. Compared to him, I'm a saint. God is not fooled by such carefree attitude. What is more, even if we come with a repentant heart, heart, even if we do come with a repentant heart, God is not obliged to forgive us just because we turned up. Okay? Why do I say this? Because only Jesus merits salvation for us. He is the only sinless one who, who can approach God for us. The one who intercedes, we become He is the one through whom we become acceptable to God. With no merit of our own. All the good we have done, Apostle Paul said, are like filthy rags. But thanks be to God through Christ. And this is the good news. The Gospel, verses 18 to 20. Come, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here is is some amazingly good news. This is... This is the remedy, not just a temporal but eternal. This is, this is even though there is nothing in the preceding and the following verses which show any softening of, of the wayward and rebellious hearts before any mention is made of their obedience, there is the announcement of salvation. If we reverse this and make salvation obedience on condition of our obedience, there will be neither obedience nor salvation. Our salvation is authored by God. He is the beginning. He is in the middle and he is in the end. 
if obedience is instilled in us by the Lord, that means that our obedience is in, in genuine response to his grace, to his salvation. God announced that there will be a cleansing from sin. Red, of course, is the colour of the hands of a murderer, verse 15. And we all know that a red stain on, on any material stands out. It's very hard to remove, right? But God can get it out. Both snow and wool, naturally white, and this points to the, the new nature given to sinners through Christ. This is why one of the strongest arguments for the power of the gospel, my brothers and sisters, is, is, the, is the personal testimony of someone who, whose life has been changed by the gospel. Let me finish with this story. In the uh, 1800s, in the 1800s, uh, Charles Bradlaugh, was an avowed atheist, he was a, a British MP, he once challenged the Reverend H.P. Hughes to a debate. Um, the preacher, he was a head of a rescue mission in London and accepted the challenge with the condition that he could bring with him a hundred men and women who would tell what, were, what had happened in their lives since trusting Jesus as their saviour. They would be people who once lived in deep sin, some having come from troubled homes, most of them did. And Hughes, um, and Hughes said that they would not only tell of their conversion, but they would submit to cross-examination by anyone who doubted their story. And furthermore, the minister invited his opponent to bring with him to the debate a group of non-believers who could tell how they were helped by a faith. And when the day arrived, the preacher came, accompanied by a hundred converted, transformed people. But Bradlaugh... The MP, the atheist, never showed up. That's not the end of the story. The result, the meeting turned into a time of testimonies. All the believers got up and told their stories. And the icing on the cake was that many unbelievers who had turned up to hear the debate, they heard the testimonies and they were converted as well. Can't muck around with God, guys. Right? We know who wins in the end. Thanks be to God for His amazing grace. What a great God we have. God is our salvation. Amen? Amen.